Let's pray. Lord, please give the words that I say today that you have given to me the power to reach into our hearts and our minds and to bring us into a deeper knowledge of your truth, that you love us, that you've called us, and a knowledge of what you call us to. In your name, Amen. So this passage in John 21, I'd say probably a lot of us would say we're fairly familiar with it. I confess, though, it wasn't until I was preparing the sermon that I realised just how much of the context of this passage I'd forgotten. Understanding it means we need to track back a little bit to where Jesus and Peter's relationship broke. We'll also see some echoes, maybe, of other parts of their relationship and the encounters. Hopefully, as we do this, it will help make a bit more sense of the one we read about in this passage, this deep honest, uncomfortable, restorative reconciliation between two friends. So let's begin. We recognise the echo of Peter's three denials from that night when Jesus was arrested. And you might think, like I often have, that these three encounters are a bit like Jesus undoing those three denials. A mathematical logic. But I think maybe there's some more for us here. So rewind back to Thursday, Maundy Thursday's Last Supper. In chapter 13, verse 9 and verses 37 to 38, Peter burns with this characteristic zeal, rebuffing Jesus' statement that, oh, you're going to deny me. Peter continues his zealous tendencies when he chops off the ear of Malchus, the high priest's servant, in chapter 18. Jesus admonishes Peter. Imagine how confused and probably embarrassed Peter was in that moment. From that moment, we see a kind of unravelling of Peter's certainty. Ever felt like that? Peter and John follow Jesus and the soldiers to the high priest's house. And instead of being certain about where he needs to be, he has to actually ask his friend John to get a servant to let him in. So who you know. And you'd think having gotten in, he would then continue to follow Jesus. But he waits in the courtyard, uncertain. And even though John is the one asking the high priest's servant to let Peter in, once he's in, Peter distances himself when asked if he is Jesus' disciple. I'm not. A betrayal of Jesus. But it's also a betrayal of John who got him there. A little later, and Peter still hasn't made it past the courtyard. He's warming himself by the fire with the other servants. And funnily enough, they notice the odd one out. Aren't you one of Jesus' disciples? I am not. And then it gets even more specific. An eyewitness, and not just any eyewitness, but Malchus's cousin, Malchus the guy whose ear got chopped off by Peter, says, didn't I see you? No, Peter denies it again. And then, cock-a-doodle-doo. Imagine the shame. And that brings us to Friday morning. Later that day, Jesus is crucified and nothing in the Bible shows us what Peter was feeling or doing or thinking at that point. But over this last Easter weekend, I took part in the Burn 24-7 40 Hours of Worship. 
and I approached the slots that I was taking part in as though I was one of the disciples on that Good Friday night and that Holy Saturday night. Remember, they didn't know what we know about Easter Sunday. They didn't know he would raise again. So what did they feel? Fear? Disappointment? Doubt? Despair? Anger? Frustration? Questions? And for Peter, I would think, quite a lot of guilt. So, move forward to Sunday. What did Jesus and Peter's relationship look like after the resurrection? The moment that Jesus is being told to be alive again, as soon as things seem to have changed, it's first thing in the morning and Mary Magdalene runs to tell the disciples that the stone has been rolled away. But wait a minute, even though Peter and John race to the tomb and Peter looks inside, remember the conversation that Mary and Jesus have in verse 13. It's probable that they all thought actually Jesus's body had been stolen or moved away by the soldiers or the Jewish officials. Peter is still in the dark about the resurrection. But then there's a glimmer of light. After Peter and John leave the tomb, Mary encounters her risen Lord and then she runs to tell the disciples. Imagine the mixed emotions of Peter. Relief, oh, all the things I believed in are not worthless. Confusion about why Jesus had to die. Hope that everything would be well. Joy at the possibility that his friend Jesus was risen again. All tinged with his underlying guilt about his denials. A joy, but mixed with dread. Have you ever felt like that? When we get to Sunday evening, the disciples are together and Jesus appears, ignoring the bolted doors and the closed hearts. Jesus stands among them in the very same room as Peter. And Jesus says, peace be with you, to the disciples. How deeply does that peace go and settle behind Peter's shame? When Jesus says, as the Father sent me, so I sent you, how deeply does that commissioning sit alongside Peter's guilt? When Jesus breathes on them and asks them to receive the Holy Spirit, how much room do you think there was next to the large rock in him of that shame? And lastly, when Jesus says, if you forgive anyone's sins, then they're forgiven. If you don't, they're not. How does that sit with Peter? Did Peter discount himself from the peace and the commissioning and the breath of the spirit because of the apology that remained undone? A denial unacknowledged, something unforgiven. Well, in Peter's mind anyway. Take a moment, do you or I ever discount ourselves from the peace and the commissioning and the breath of the spirit because of something in us which remains undone. For a whole week, we have no idea whether Peter and Jesus encountered each other or, or were in the same place. But one week later, Jesus appears a second time, calling out Thomas's doubt. Oh, 
if I was Peter, I would be terrified that Jesus was going to call out my hidden sin. Ever felt like that? So, to today's passage, at last you may say. Given all of this context, it's even more unusual that we would find Peter and six other disciples sitting at the side of the Sea of Galilee. Why were they there? They've all seen Jesus at least twice, yet here they are, back at their nets. I'm going fishing, says Peter in verse 3. And the others join him in some kind of limbo. They've seen Jesus, they've seen the scars in his hand and his feet and his side, and in Thomas's case, touched them. They've been directly spoken to by Jesus, they've received his peace, they've had the breath of the Spirit and they've been commissioned. But there they were, at the edge of a lake, on the shore of their old lives. The temptation to revert to old familiar patterns was just too strong. But the difference was, being fishermen wasn't their calling anymore. And either all the fish got a memo from God the night before going, don't swim that way, or the seven guys who were fishermen for most of their lives had suddenly magically forgotten all their skills. I'm going with the first one. And here we find Jesus. He comes to where they are, just like he does for each of us, no matter where we are, meeting us where we're at. And the first words of encounter with them are not ones to tell them off or shame them. No. Jesus just shouts across the water to them. Picture maybe a wry smile with a raised eyebrow. It's the kind of tone of voice maybe of a friend or a parent who's caught you doing something pretty ridiculous in a silly predicament. No fish yet, eh? Nope. Monosyllabic. Perhaps they're just embarrassed at having been caught by their saviour doing what they used to do. Or maybe they're just exhausted from a night of fishless fishing. Jesus's response? It's an invitation to trust him again. Just like in Luke 5 verses 4 to 10, it's Jesus's first commissioning of Peter. From now on, you'll fish for people. And they accept his invitation and surprise, surprise, just like the last time, God seems to have sent a second memo to the fish saying, swim this way, and they all go in the net. The beauty of Jesus's interactions with the disciples is that he doesn't just stand there awkwardly while they begin hauling in this horde of fish. He's made them breakfast. Jesus goes on providing for their needs, even when they've reverted to their old life. And after a long fishless night, I'm guessing the disciples were pretty hungry. Jesus lets them eat and waits until the end of the breakfast to directly address Peter. He brings to light the unsaid. Peter, do you love me? You know I love you. Apparently there are two words in this passage, which we lose in the English, tra English translation. And they're the two words for love. When Jesus asks Peter if he loves him, he uses the word agape, which is a selfless, intimate, until the end love. The kind of love that God has for us. Each time Peter replies, he uses the word filio, which is a kind of brotherly, friendly, well-meaning, but clearly imperfect love. Vicar and theologian Sam Wells puts it beautifully like this. Do you love me wholeheartedly and with no thought for yourself? 
differently from the way you love the disciples. You know I love you as a friend. Do you love me wholeheartedly and with no thought for yourself? You know I love you as a friend. Do you really love me as a friend? You know everything. I love you as a friend. It's a kind of confession, a realisation, Peter acknowledging the denials and acknowledging the shortfall of his love for Jesus. And yet, and I confess I've missed this for three decades of reading this passage, look at this. Even though Peter repeatedly responds in a way that says, yeah, I love you as a friend. And even though that's actually not what Jesus was asking him, Jesus still entrusts him with the care of his flock, the responsibility to nurture and pastor and care for the church. Shepherding was a language that they would understand. And it's an analogy that Jesus had used just days before in chapter 10, verse 11. I am the good shepherd. And the good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. Perhaps, just perhaps, the gravitas of what Peter is being called to by Jesus is just beginning to sink in. It puts Peter's words in chapter 13, verse 14 to the test when he says, I lay down my life for you, Jesus. Really? Here, Jesus calls him to lay down his life for the flock. Which reminds us of the very first thing that Jesus says about Peter when he meets him. He says, you will be known as Cephas and on this rock, I will build my flock, my church. Where might that strike a chord for us? Where have I been willing, or at least I think I've been willing, to do something in the name of God or for God, but I've not been willing to do something when it comes for another person? Do we need to remember our calling, the calling to care selflessly for God's people? And don't forget God's people means each of his children, which in case we've forgotten, is literally every human being on this planet. Having entrusted this mission to care for and feed his flock, Jesus then uses the very same words that he used to call Peter in the first place. Follow me. Do you need to hear those words again? Do I need to hear those words again? We've already been called. We've already been forgiven. We've already been given peace and the Holy Spirit, but something has sat inside us unsaid and undone. It's blocked us from receiving the peace and the calling that God has put on our lives, blocking you from taking that step fully into the life you were made for. Let's pray. God, I thank you that you know each and every one of us this morning. That you were there when we were formed in our mother's womb and you know every particle, every characteristic, every thought we have. So God, we ask you to know us 
and we open ourselves freely to say, know us, because we know that by knowing us, you love us deeply and you still call us. You know our imperfections, but you love us and you invite us to do your work on this earth, to love your children. Remind us, Lord, of that time when you first called us. Speak to us now.